Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode on the Surviving Society Spotlight season. I am your guest host today. My name is Faraha Asani. I am a postdoctoral researcher with training in biochemistry and immunology. I'm also a writer, a mental health advocate, and a teacher. Today I'm being joined by Dr. Mwenza Blel. So Mwenza, please take the floor and introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Mwenza Blel. Right now I'm a research fellow at Newcastle University. I'm also a community organizer. My background is in anthropology. Thank you so much for joining me, Mwenza. The reason that I wanted to do this particular episode was because of how much we're talking about race science and how important it is, I think, that we continue to have this conversation and think about our complicities in race science and in scientific racism as scientists. Perhaps most importantly, think about how we can move forward and how we can make science pedagogy and by extension STEM pedagogy more focused on social justice. I would like to start by asking you what your thoughts are on the concepts of race science, scientific racism, and racism in science. And in my mind, I feel like these three things mean different things, even though they all overlap. And I feel like it's very important for us to get a good handle on the vocabulary or the terminology so that we understand what we're dealing with, so that we use them appropriately. And most importantly, so that we're able to target solutions towards all of these different things that we're experiencing, especially as Black people in the sector, you know, who are focused on social justice and activism. There are distinctions that you can make between those three things. And I think it is often important strategically to understand what people see themselves as doing or what people themselves are concerned about. So there are people who are concerned only really about racism in science, you know, people who are interested in, you know, EDI indicators. Can, you know, black people in get ahead in STEM subjects? They're really interested in that. And then other groups of people who are interested in in legacies of scientific racism, but thinking of scientific racism as a thing that happened in a particular historical period which you know maybe is ended and then there are people who are very interested in kind of race science as what i would think of as the current set of um so there's definitely a connection between that kind of historical scientific racism and race science but there are a lot of people who are interested in justifying race science seeing it as independent of scientific racism and seeing it as independent of racism and science and justifying its existence saying that we do science on the reality of race that's a way that you can see the three things as kind of separate but of course there is a common underpinning to those things thank you i agree with you i think that you know they're all linked and i think that we need to deal with all of them at the same time basically we need to give attention to all of them and it's so interesting a couple of weeks ago there was a scientist a woman of color she put up a poll on twitter asking about whether scientists felt the need to teach their students about racism Um, and I responded by saying I think you know not only do we need to teach our students about racism in science but also scientific racism and race science and I got abuse for that and I also got a lot of scientists saying science is objective so what do you mean if we were going to judge by their avatars on their profile pictures these are people who are my age you know so first of all the notion that these are old ways of thinking in 
is, you know, that goes right out the window. We know that 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 is not the case. And then, you know, there's always this temptation to use this science as objective to to push back against any kind of accountability. Even from my research career, I know that scientists, myself included, don't have a very good grasp of race and the history of race. And perhaps in a way, this is due to, you know, how we've been trained. Mm. And the fact that we have been trained to take on what our teachers say as gospel and what our textbooks say as gospel and questioning that and questioning the racism itself then becomes as if we're being subjective and and we know that that's not the case at all right and so i want to then lead on into the practice of race science and you know all forms of racism within science and we know again that there are some in this sector there are some malevolent players, if I can use that phrase, who are always very quick to run for the calipers, you know, and start testing the perimeter of the skull and linking IQ to race. We know that. We know that that happens very unfortunately. At the same time, I'm also thinking about the well-intentioned scientists who often do research that still involves race. And I'm going to hold my hands up here and say that in my research portfolio, in my master's and in the optimization phase of my PhD, I was complicit in this. I was complicit in biological essentialism and in always thinking that race was a legitimate factor to be studied. I saw a tweet from a brilliant scientist and science communicator, Medina Wayne, a couple of days ago, who said that the problem is that we are drawing conclusions that are basically only one part of the picture. We are forgetting about histories. We're forgetting about injustices. And again, you know, thinking about this science is so objective. What we tend to do as scientists often is say, well, these are the conclusions I've done or I've drawn based on standardized experiments. So how dare you tell me this is injustice? It's not injustice because people often like to say, well, if I put a chemical into a cell line or into some cells that I've extracted and I measure with equipment that I know is not faulty and I get these results, then this is the full picture. But I think what is happening is that we're drawing conclusions based on a couple of puzzle pieces. Our conclusions are painting a whole picture based on only a couple of puzzle pieces. So again, I just want to say that this is what I've been complicit in. And I have been doing a lot of thinking about why I never questioned, why I never critically thought about the fact that I am so comfortable with thinking about race, sex, gender, and I didn't even fully have a grasp again of their histories, um, what they meant, how perhaps in the future any of the conclusions I've drawn could be misused by those who are invested in anti-blackness. Again, what I found is that this is how I was taught. This is how I was trained to think. I mean, I look back on my, my training and I got my degrees in biochemistry and I had the privilege of receiving really fantastic training at the University of Johannesburg. I've looked at what it takes to get a biochemistry degree there 10 years after I left. I've looked at different universities in different parts of the world and degrees in biochemistry are focused on subjects like biology, biochemistry, microbiology, you know, parasitology, all fantastic subjects. At the same time, nobody is thinking about social justice. Nobody is thinking about uh, any form of social studies, any form of the history of science, 
any form of the history of race, gender, we are trained to think in a, in a very specific way. And so it looks like when we are questioning how we've been trained, we are being problematic when in fact, refusing to question that in itself has made a lot of us problematic. So again, just to say, while there are a lot of malevolent people out there, there are many of us who have been well-intentioned, but the impact of our work could be harmful. So that in itself is one form of entangled complicity. And I would say that there are complicities because there, there are multiple complicities. So in your mind, how do we as scientists approach our complicities? What do you think is the best framework to use for accountability? How do we deal with our portfolios you know, that we've already published, that we've already put out there? And how do we redress our work, basically? And how do we ensure that the students to come and the colleagues that we have currently do not make the same mistakes that we make? So basically, I'm asking you, how do we disrupt and how do we enact justice in this sector? You can pull all, all of some of the, these things kind of apart, right? So yeah. the idea of objectivity and use it as a shield to cover up bad science, mm -hmm. I think is really, is really interesting. And it happens a lot, a process that people use where they take something that's an aspiration, it becomes a slogan mm -hmm. and use that to pretend that that is what is. Like the idea of equality is an aspiration as when you introduce the idea. Um, but then people, once they've heard that slogan for a while, they start demanding that you should accept that that's the reality, when in fact that only ever was an aspiration and remains to be seen in, in practice. And I think that's one of the things that goes on with science is that people get confused between between those aspirations and defend garbage. You know, they depend they, on the basis of, of what are, I think, positive aspirations. If you want to take everything that's ever been called science, there's a lot to be answered for in that set of things. But I still think that there is a lot of value to science. And maybe maybe that's a minority view. I don't know. But I think, yeah, there is a problem with the education system. I've had the massive benefit of being educated in anthropology in the American tradition, which really squarely looks at the kind of history of race science, the history of scientific racism, and, and asks a lot of questions. So they really, like, I had the benefit of being massively steeped in thinking about our knowledge uh, of, of what gets called biochemistry, all the different kind of aspects of, of trying to understand what is what goes on with human bodies, what are they, what are they made of, how do they vary, but really keeping that whole history in the frame and really keeping those questions of justice in the frame. So that's something that that does not happen, certainly in the UK. We don't get that kind of education where we sit, where we learn both about the kind of nitty gritty of, of the of the science in the sense of like, you know, what base pairs and, <laughs> you know, amino acids, you know, at the same time as kind of understanding here's how this is this information is used. And you learn the techniques of science in a way explicitly as a kind of anti-racist thing. And that's part of the American tradition, or that that's what I signed up to is the, the American tradition of anthropology where science can be used as an anti-racist tool because the reality doesn't support the fictions that they continue to try to sell you. What happens when you don't have that kind of education is you get scientists who are very invested, like personal prestige, their money, their, you know, the material benefits that come along with being involved in science, you know, just because it's work. 
right? That there's a certain amount associated with it, but also all of the kind of stuff that's the societal stuff about science is this great thing and blah, blah, blah. Um, it's, you know, better than digging ditches. It's, you know, the kind of- Elitism, yeah. Exactly, all that. So they want to defend it, but they don't, they don't learn a lot of very important things or they don't get the opportunity to develop their minds in such a way that they can really think about philosophy of science and they can really think about history because they're just, they're not given those opportunities. They're, those opportunities are denied to them. And, you know, how do you know what you don't know and to, what need to find out? Like, we, we work for a living. We have exams, we have deadlines, you know, to go out there and wander freely in the world of everything people have ever written and hope that you come across the relevant stuff. It's just, it's not a reasonable expectation. So I, I'm not... I think there are reasons why why we end up in these positions where we where where we're ignorant and become complicit and there's millions of ways we're complicit in all kinds of stuff. I feel a total understanding about that. When you develop that awareness, how you spread that awareness, you know, how do you help other people to get to the point where they understand what you now understand once you get there? And then what yeah. do you do? And there's no point I think being cruel to people. Like the blame makes people uncomfortable, right? And that discomfort is not something people necessarily sit well with. It's interesting to me, especially in the UK, is a group of people who really understand the problem of race science they you know often and often they're social scientists who don't really understand much about the details of science and how science works and they don't do science they don't argue on a scientific basis they only argue from outside of science about science and that so it seems like it's two groups of people one who have a problem with race and then the other who know that uh, there's no problem with science and race because they're defending race science and uh, that's not really helpful because they, they don't know how to actually have conversations with each other. And often the, the lack of respect of people who are very invested in science in forms of knowledge that are not scientific knowledge is a real problem, right? There's a kind of arrogance that you can get built in to the status that you get as a scientist where you think, you know, history has nothing to offer me. Social science has nothing to offer me. Philosophy is, has nothing to offer me. When actually, no, that's, that's, that's foolishness. But you can see how people end up in that situation. And then they're so invested and you present what you have done, what you have put your blood, sweat and tears into, what you've invested, your whole sense of self, your ego. That's a bad thing. It makes people unhappy. It makes people feel defensive. And that sometimes they behave very, very badly in response to that. What I want and what I try to do is try to think about supporting people in doing the thinking things all the way through, giving them the pieces of information to help them kind of unpick, but also to think not let's put down all the tools of science and and stop. Then that only leaves people doing science who are totally, as you can you know, talk about bad actors, people who are totally yeah. committed to- uh, Malevolence, wickedness. Yes, exactly. And, and, and I, I know those people. Sometimes I have worked with those people. There are people who are really committed. We all have. You know, mm -hmm. diehard racists who really believe, you know, there are people out there who believe in concepts of genocide. It's incredible. Dig beneath the surface, you'll find that you may know them. <laughs> even the listeners, you don't want to leave science just to people who use the power of it for, for bad aims. How do, but how do you stay in there? And I think that's the, it is really hard work. You have to be really honest with yourself, right? In that way that actually is what the concept of science that a lot of us who are trained, you know, in this, in the last say 50 years, that we're, we're really invested in that kind of idea of science of like, of trying to get to to what are the non-arbitrary truths? What are, you know, the things we can really stand behind? The efforts that, that are made in science can be so valuable and, and can, you know, and we can work on yeah. how to make them less 
less harmful. There's a reason to stay in there and to be, you know, to be as a, as one scientist to be able to talk to another and say, why does why is it that you think this? How do I help you move beyond the assumption that your ethnicity variable is underpinned by some kind of biology? You know, like I know why yes. you think that because you're bringing your concepts from home that you've never investigated, you've never read about the concept of ethnicity. It seems you have no knowledge of ethnicity is really trying to cover up for a, an older idea of race that was created explicitly for the purpose of domination and justifying terrible violence that you would not actually stand behind, but also that you don't know about that history of violence because exactly. you weren't taught about that history either. Exactly, we weren't taught. And you know, when you say this, so again, um, I'm just thinking about my own portfolio and my practice and the fact that my handling of race and gender and sex has been a mess. Again, you know, many people that I've worked with, it's the same with them. And and we we weren't taught. But at the same time, another issue is that we didn't question. So I think it's about letting those that we are training know that it's absolutely fine to ask questions. You know, I'm all for interdisciplinarity because we need our colleagues. We need help. Help us. We need help from humanities and from social sciences because many times we don't even know where to begin. Yeah. And what you were saying, you know, again, back to this biological essentialism of underpinning all the conclusions we draw, all the hypotheses we, we bring forward. Um, I know that the three words that I have used often are innate, susceptibility yeah. and predisposition. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you know, it's really, I trust me, my people, it, it, I, I'm, I'm saying this with sadness in my heart you know, that I have been complicit in this, but there's no way around it. This is in my work. Yeah. So it's about the fact that how come at that point in time, I didn't question that this is what I'm saying. Yes, again, my, my techniques were standardized, but this is only one piece of the puzzle to, you know, what Medina was saying about the fact that we need to look backwards. What What is the history? And again, question what we are questioning and the questions that we're bringing forth as our research objectives and aims. And in all honesty, I think with recommendations and with thinking about the future, another aspect we now need to safeguard for is how our work can be used mm -hmm. towards widespread racism. And we need to do this. And I think the only way that we can do this is by introducing aspects, you know, of social studies within our formal science degrees, because in truth, not everybody is going to go out there to look for more information. So why don't we bring it in? Why yes. don't we bring it into our formalized science degrees? I really think that we need to do that, Mwenza. What are your thoughts? This is where the distortion of reality around hierarchies and people who are already there and invested in the way things are is part of the problem. The institutions I've worked at in the last few years have really convinced me that not to malign dinosaurs who are who are great, but there are a lot of dinosaurs <laughs> out there <laughs> in academia who oh, they they don't want it. They don't want things to be better, really. There's so much irony, really. It's just overwhelming sometimes that, you know, the, the point of science is that the work you did 20 years ago, 10 years ago, should should be obsolete. You should know it's wrong now and know why. Yeah, yeah. You know, that you have the commitment to being correct, producing valid knowledge that yes. allows you now to be able to look back at that work and go, that was wrong. I was working with the wrong tools conceptually but there are people who want to sit on the mountain of their papers and say i was right i've always been correct 
right? And that's not supposed to be what this conception of science that we have signed up to is really explicitly not supposed to work that way. It's not, mm-hmm. I don't go and tell theologians, you're wrong and uh, you need to re-examine and re- because that's not that they don't accept that those are the the way that they should be operating. I'm not, I don't go and disrupt their their works. When it comes to scientists, yes, you're supposed to know that you're right. You're not supposed to cover up that you're wrong. Yes, you're supposed to take a challenge. Get so embedded. So when you're a master's student, a PhD student, you know, you want to look into that. You want to say, am I using this correctly? Is this really valid? You get told that you're, that those are inappropriate questions. People stop you questioning. Like, I, I mean, it's happened to me where my superiors in the, in the hierarchy of, of academia, where I have said, you know, that I know this is a standardized thing, but I've given it some thought, you know, just by chance, the influences I've had, the education I've had, prepare me with the tools to unpick some of this stuff. But mm-hmm. the backlash you get from your superiors and yeah. how, how do you have the confidence to to persist when you're not sure you haven't published it? You're just thinking, no, but I, I'm not sure. I feel a bit uncomfortable about this. Um, you know, if you're if your indoctrination is not so perfect that you, mm-hmm. can, you know, people will invalidate you. You know, yes. I've had I've had my pr- my ability to progress and continue in academia continually threatened very directly by capricious, vindictive people who do not want their prior work to be questioned by my by my, you know, saying this. I don't like this. That, con-, you know, it, yeah. it, it lacks an appropriate scientific basis. And mm-hmm. it's and it's problematic for these other kind of reasons as well. And they don't want to hear that. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot standing in the way. And that's why I don't think we should individualize this stuff and say, you know, you bear the burden because it can be paralyzing to work against totally as an individual, as a junior person, to work against a whole structure of people who are like, no, I would rather be wrong than have this prestige taken away from me. There is a lot there. So we have to support each other in looking through this. It's like the whole whistleblowing thing, right? The only way you get into a position to blow a whistle is where you have been inside enough that people have exposed to you what's going on. Yeah, so we can't, yeah. you know, we can't sneer at whistleblowers because they were involved because the, otherwise we wouldn't have any whistleblowers. There's a value to having internalized the idea and being able to understand those logics of how how susceptibility is presented to you as a neutral framing of something that is actually what we're talking about is the the physical consequences of of terrible injustice, but treat that as something that lives in the bodies of the inferior. People from outside actually can't understand. We understand how you can be indoctrinated to believe that this is neutral science and shouldn't be questioned when actually there's something underpinning that that's really bad that continues and continues to blame people for the consequences of injustices perpetrated upon them. No one can do that but us. I honestly feel really emotional right now. Yeah, it's just, you know, I know that there's so many, especially so many black people around the world that I've not had the privilege yet to meet, but scientists and anthropologists who are very, very committed towards establishing a new kind of STEM pedagogy, um, liberatory STEM pedagogy. And um, I just think that, you know, it's, it's I don't like to overuse this word, but decolonizing our own minds is a very uncomfortable process um, that will reveal, you know, complicities and will also reveal to us that this is going to be a lifelong journey. Yes. Um, and and I also remember something that um, that was said to me by a fantastic scholar Kelly Jo Bluen, who was talking. Um, I had a conversation with Kelly Jo and with um, Dr. Foluke Ad- Adebisi 
two fantastic scholars and we were talking about the process of decolonizing one's mind and Foluke was talking about, you know, the fact that we need to accept that this is going to be a lifelong commitment to learning and unlearning. And Kelly Joe was saying, you know, when we when we are doing this process of decolonizing and, you know, the introspection and, and the inner work that we also need to be very careful that we do not manifest it as some kind of performance of innocence. Yes. And that has stuck with me because I thought, oh, okay, what does this mean exactly? And, you know, I'm, I'm working that out for myself, but I feel that, you know, that can be also extended to many other things that we're doing in our lives and in our work in social justice. But what I feel that that means is that, you know, we need to go beyond just taking account and saying, oh, this is the bad stuff that I've done and I'm sorry for it. And we need to make sure that we invest in reparative action, in some form of reparative action. So connecting this with uh, your statement about whistleblowing, I think that those of us who are in this sector as much as possible, we need to work towards this liberatory pedagogy that I was talking about. And I know that there are many people who are doing that. I know that there are many people who have written books and who have, I always think about um, Prof. Chanda Prescott Weinstein's um, Decolonize um, STEM Pedagogy reading list and how this professor has put in that work to kind of curate this list of resources. I'm thinking about another very powerful voice, Dr. Shea Akil McLean, who keeps, oh my goodness, you know, the way this scholar just keeps sharing so much work on Twitter you know, just through social media. And at the same time, um, I know that Dr. Akil McLean is planning to also do something towards establishing some new course about equity in science, something like that. I am aware that there are a lot of movements towards decolonizing global health. There's one in Edinburgh, there's one in Duke that I know of, and I know that across the world, you know, there are these kind of movements. And when I think about it, the, the movements that I know are being led by Black people and people of color as well. So we all have a vested interest in this. I do know that we have some strong allies as well, white people and non-Black people of color. At the same time, I think, you know, it's just settling or what is settling upon me is the fact that this is a lifelong commitment. It's not just a lifelong commitment towards, you know, doing some great work, but it's also a lifelong commitment towards doing that inner work and making sure that we don't slip into complacency of performing, you know, that innocence and saying, oh, I'm so sorry for everything I've done and take it much further than that. And in a way, it's, it's exciting. It's also nerve wracking. But I want to keep myself on the side of being excited and saying, you know what, Our, we do have what it takes to deal with our personal discomfort. Yes. Our personal discomfort is not going to end us. It will not end us. It will be uncomfortable in the moment. And, you know, there. I think also accepting the fact that we will keep finding things about our portfolios and about ourselves that make us uncomfortable. And just trusting that we have what it takes to deal with it in those moments. So like you say, you know, taking care of one another, investing into one another and making sure that we do take our place as maybe not whistleblowers, but maybe, you know, agitators within this field, agitators who are lifelong committed to making sure that the scientists to come have a better starting point. And I just wanted to say something really funny about what you said about, you know, the dinosaurs is 
I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago or maybe it was months ago, you know, time is moving really funny in this lockdown. So there's a scholar, Miriam Gurba de Serrano, who said that, you know, in asking, in, in a lot of people saying, what do I need to do to make academia more equitable? The statement that Miriam made was that some people just need to resign. <laughs> That's the truth. Some people just need to resign because if they are committed to, you know, committed to no change, then what's the point? And it's really interesting because I think researchers, whether we are in academia or academia adjacent positions, we always tend to pride ourselves that we are critical thinkers and we are innovators. And that's how we, that's what we believe we are. Then why aren't we willing to change? And why aren't we willing to turn all of these fantastic frameworks that we've established inwards? Yes. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? What I come back to a lot in my thinking, in my work, in, you know, in my kind of activism, but also in, in my academic work is the incredible importance of vigilance. Mm. And that... And that is not, that is exactly the opposite of that kind of self-satisfied thing or just trying to build up your innocence or just trying to be mm. always on the right side of things, you know, but vigilance is a more complex kind of work than just trying to trying to protect yourself. If you want to have integrity, if you want, not just personally, but for your work to have some, some integrity, that it's not, that's not doing nothing. Like I, I've come across this idea from people and that's part of how, how the paralysis works is that doing nothing is innocent. Doing nothing, never being wrong. Those are those are those are, are what what protect you. When actually, um, integrity integrity is is something else. It's I mm -hmm. think when you're when you're taking action and and you're you can see that you have wh where you have gone wrong, mm -hmm. and deal with that. I think that's and you know and, and and you can see it in practice. People can recognize it in other people. So you know, there's a person who's a giant in kind of my field. One of her big pieces of work she got it wrong. She draw, drew a conclusion that she later found out was not true. And she published that saying, okay, no, here's a, in, in a way, not like as a correction, like mm -hmm. you know, small line, but you know, she's published what, what the, what the reality is, what the reality that she missed, let's say in her first study. And it's really interesting because people are like, wow, she has actually a lot of integrity. You wouldn't have known unless she took that step to, to correct it and say, well, here's what's really going on. And here's what we now know for me. That's, that's where I want to be. Yeah, be that person yeah. who's like, let me let me correct myself and know that that yeah, that's yeah. going to be an ongoing process as we get to understand things better. And I think it's a really interesting like, the, the that innocence thing because there's a lot of talk about kind of white innocence, white fragility. I definitely see people trying to deploy strategies to demonstrate their innocence rather than taking this approach that we're taking. Uh, that we're talking about here. And I understand why people do that. They want to be blameless. Mm. And so so they want to, you know, push push back. And I think it's really, there are people who are actually opposed to, to justice because they're afraid of it. So I think those people need to recognize that in themselves mm -hmm. and kind of deal with it. And we shouldn't be the ha have to be the ones doing all of the all kind the work, of work yeah. of admitting what, what white supremacy does to, to your mind. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it's, it's not just operating in us. We're just willing to recognize of course, it. Yeah. So I think, yeah, a, a wider group of people need to be willing to do that. But I guess one of my worries is that sometimes the prestige in academia attaches more easily to some bodies than others. Of course, and yeah. Same, you know, with this decolonizing stuff, no question that decolonizing needs to happen. We need to take a decolonial approach to biology, certainly to science in general. 
I think there are people who are hoping to get prestige from that work rather than just to do better work. Oh, yes. <laughs> that just needs to be called out. People need to be able to yeah. recognize that in themselves. Are they just trying to gather the prestige? And also who is being, who is kind of the top of the, because people are so hierarchical, you know, they want to say this is the, the number one scholar in this field, the number, you know, in that, mm -hmm. in those kind of ways. It's very interesting how you can find, even with a bizarre thing, Black Lives Matter protests here, the spokesperson in my city for Black Lives Matter was on the news was somehow a white academic, a white woman academic. How is it that, you know, the person who's getting the keynote lecture to talk about this or getting the being on the news to talk about, that's where the racism in science and racism in academia meets, meets this stuff. Because sometimes I can, it, it feels like the work that I'm doing to try to tackle racism diminishes my people's respect for my work. But mm. when, uh, when other people do that same work, it increases the, the yeah. respect that they have, people have for that, those people. Mm -hmm. I can really see that rolling out. And I think, so this is part of why we have to um, look at it. And I think there's that whole idea that, you know, maybe white people are more objective and especially around race issues, that they're more objective when, no, that's not, that's not how it works. But you know, that, that there are these persistent ideas that, you know, mm -hmm. maybe we only want justice because we're getting the raw end of the deal somehow. But and like, I guess if that's discrediting, like you don't want justice, you want injustice because you're you're winning. Like, you know, I yeah. don't know. I think people have to really to really think about this stuff and the way that yeah. they the way that they give, you know, the way the same thing with like the, the childcare thing, right? When women are looking after their own children, that's not respected. It's just to mm -hmm. be criticized. She's not doing it exactly the right way. When a man look after his own child, you you know, then that's, oh, he's so wonderful. It shouldn't be like that. And I think in this area, there's a bit of that kind of going on, you know? So I will always talk about this because it's forever annoying to me, the fact that I have tried to propose a course for social responsibility in the sciences. Like, I feel like I'm a broken record at this point, always talking about it. And the fact that, you know, I've not really had interest from research institutions in the UK that I would have expected uh, to have interest from just because of how much noise they make about caring about decolonization <laughs> and the fact that this is this is a course that I felt okay based on my own experiences and and my own um, trying to take responsibility for being problematic trying to ensure that like I said, you know, students to come, science, science students to come, have a better starting point than I did and become better critical thinkers and become at least people who think about social justice, mm -hmm. you know? And, and the fact that up until now, over a year later, I'm still struggling. I, I get invited to give a one hour talk on decolonization of STEM, but it's been so hard to get people to take my proposal seriously. And so I ask myself this question that why is it that this work is good enough to invite for a one hour talk, but it isn't to actually change and hopefully improve your science degrees. And what pisses me off is the fact that this proposal of mine is to test out the effectiveness of this course. It's not like I'm just coming in saying, wham, bam, let's just throw this into degrees. It's saying, okay, let us see 
So it's a longitudinal study, Mwenza, to follow over a couple of years and see if there have been, you know, any changes in modes of thinking. So, um, you know, I have different groups that I would have liked to kind of, you know, I have a control group versus groups that I want to 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 use to teach this this course, first year, second year life science students. So it's a whole four year um, project that I've written out. And I feel that if people are, and I, let me just say that I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person who's trying to do work like this. Like I said, you know, I know Dr. Shea Akil McLean is trying to do similar, probably even better work. But my point is, so why, th this is obviously a tick box. You want to say you've invited me for one hour to speak, but you do not want to take this research seriously. And it's research that even if there are many of us across the world who are thinking about, it's obviously novel research because I've not really seen anything published on it. There's a lot of structure, right? So this is the thing is that this is where that you have to, it's important to kind of have that, that theoretical basis for, for understanding what's going on. What's, you know, it's, this is not just about individual racists. It's not about individual prejudice or individual thoughtlessness or ignorance. There are structures, right? And, and in a university, they're very visible structures. It's not like, you know, some of this, some of the stuff that's going on in society that's very structural. You can really understand it in a university. They literally build structures. There are processes. There are ways you can do things. There are people who can't do things and people who can do things. And, you know, when it's like when you're young, they tell you, you know, if you want to change the system, you'll go into the system and you have to go and change it from within. So then they just don't let you in. And they build the structures so that even if you get in, you're not in a position to do that that thing because they say no 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 the process is this the degree structure is that they have these certifications there's you know the national levels there's all of these kind of huge bureaucratic structures that mean no you can't just introduce a course like and you can't you know and they don't give you you can't get the job to do that because you have to be working there because you have to go through this process and then they they have an open call and then they hire someone else and not you and you know so, so they have a whole kind of setup for how it how it works, and that's why yeah. we have to keep looking at, okay, how are these kind of problems working out? It's not just about changing hearts and minds, but about what are those processes? Yeah. How is it that we end up with lots of uh, of of young black people um, not able to uh, like you know all of these different kind of gaps? You know, how is it that you end up still uh, all of these people coming in doing A levels, trying to get into university? you know, performing in their degree and, and then and then up at the top, the people who have more power to to introduce new courses, to restructure degrees so that they can do different things than what they were doing this yeah. year, next year, you know, who ends up in those positions and you know who it is because it's it's 90% white men, right? It's, yeah. you know, the, the figures are there. It's not a question, you know, we know who it is who gets to the, so what happens along the way, how people, and then, you know, who gets into those positions? Oh, if they're not white men, are they less likely to challenge things because they've mm -hmm. been, they've had the, either the fight beaten out of them across the way, they've become so dependent on the complicity with yeah. things that not wanting to challenge or, you know, just, what is it? How, how do you actually get, and you know, Sarah Ahmed writes about this so beautifully and so well, and she does so much of the work for us. This is the thing where we do work for each other to support each other and understanding what is going on. You know, she writes about how what it takes to get ahead in the system is what reproduces the system. Mm -hmm. So how do you get to the point where you're you're creating, restructuring a degree, offering new courses, all that, getting to do long-term research in a university? 
not everybody gets into that position. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and it's very, and you know, we, we can see all the, you know, the PhD graduates and the people who getting the, get the jobs, who that does a PhD gets to professor. It's a tiny percentage, you know, and then when you talk about undergraduate and master's degrees, you know, yeah. Who gets into the position to be reshaping science, yes. to be reshaping yeah. the how knowledge is produced? I'm thinking about the fact that one of the excuses given to me, and I will call it an excuse by a top university for not taking on my project was the fact that they felt it wouldn't pass through ethics. And I didn't buy that excuse at all because they said, you know, when you are trying to implement this course, and if you have a control group that haven't received this course, the ethics committee is going to come back and say, this isn't fair that a certain number of students receive it versus those that don't. And I'm thinking, basically I've, I've explained my methodology and I'm pretty certain that we can um, overcome this. This is not an insurmountable piece of feedback that I will receive from an ethics board, you know? So again, just to say that that was obviously an excuse. They reject that versus now not having anything Along the way, the excuses you hear are are truly incredible. Like I should really yeah. write of write a, a document of all of the kind of bizarre mm -hmm. and ridiculous excuses, and they can't say the real reasons for things, right? Because there are legal implications. They don't want to go to court over what they over telling you the truth accidentally. So they have to say something, no matter how absurd. Like yeah, if you've ever I've worked in medical schools, that you know they'll deny people surgery, <laughs> like they'll deny people the, the new cancer drugs. RCTs, you know, randomized controlled trials, which is what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. They do them all the time about the most grave issues. Exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, the stuff that I, that I know goes on in psychology departments where they, they, ver they harm people, they cause them pain as part of the experiment. They, you know, they do, I mean, all kinds of, they, they, <laughs> I know the, yeah. once, you, once you know what's, what's going on, there's a, and, and yet they will use the, They will use the ethics thing against you sometimes. Yeah. I mean, in all kinds of ways, it's really, the whole thing is, is um, when you can take a step back from it, fascinating and, and hilarious, but yeah. terrible because you can see that the excuses that you get. You know, I think especially because that excuse, um, I knew that not receiving the course would not in any way, shape or form harm anyone, you know? So it, it, it wouldn't harm them. So that's why I was really, the word is discombobulated, yes. <laughs> but then I always am, I always am. Um, and you know, I think at the, at the very least, if we can push for some kind of interdisciplinarity between STEM subjects and humanities and social sciences. So, you know, if we are encouraging STEM students to take on certain modules in the humanities and rather than making them electives, if we, if we pick a couple of modules that we know will really um, help them out to their thinking processes and especially in the context of race, to get a better handle on, you know, race and the history of race and the history of science, you know. So I think at the very least, Mwenza, if that could be a possibility, then I would feel a little bit more confident in 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 where we're going. But yeah, I guess we can only keep doing what we we're doing. And I hope that you know, sometime in the future we have, we're able to create some kind of concerted effort so that those of us who are working in pockets can come together. And again, I know that there are movements to decolonize global health, um, to decolonize, you know, there's equality in, in STEM um, movement in London. So, so if we can come together and 
perhaps create some kind of institution built on the relational power and the networks that we have, maybe we can push for change. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's definitely what you're talking about has, I think maybe medicine has had more of that. So I've been involved in medical education for many, many years. And, you know, it's been kind of, I guess, admitted <laughs> um, by the by this point that medicine is a profession where they need more more of that kind of knowledge of social science and um, mm-hmm. history and stuff to make them better doctors. But that's, you know, only after I think there's, you know, but but that came in tandem in in many ways with the understanding that medicine was, was very much a hereditary profession. Mm-hmm. So it was a very tiny fraction of the kind of class hierarchy was managing to get into medicine and they were producing problems mm-hmm. um, that, you know, the, the problems that we have with medicine as a discipline that who it, who it helps and who it helps less and who all of the, all of, you know, the racism in medicine, all of the classism in medicine, all of that stuff, sexism in medicine. So that they, they want, you know, there was an, there has been an attempt over the last, what, what are we now? 30 years, let's say, um, to try to get, to get medicine to, to do better and to be less about just memorizing all the, all the terminology, but to get, Get different ways of thinking and more respect in all these kind of ways. Yeah. Um, so that that work has happened there, but it, to my knowledge, that's not happened in engineering in the same timeline. It, this mm. is you know, and computer science and physics yeah. and that work um, needs to be done. Um, and I think we can support each other in it. But I think what I saw in doing that, trying to do that kind of teaching in medicine, is that it's not just as simple as putting the course material in there. People are actually resistant. Um, and I know oh, yes. people, people give different accounts of their students, but I often get a, actually a surprising amount of disrespect from my students who are already raised in society. So they know that people like me are not, you know, the respected parties in society. Um, so they're very skeptical about, you know, me giving them the message that there is another way of seeing things. Yeah. And so it's actually still very challenging. And, you know, it doesn't it doesn't, uh, the seed does not fall on um, on fertile ground every time, but it's important to have it there. But um, I think it's really interesting how much even 18 year olds kind of have that, that knowledge inside, how to resist the knowledge of what happened in history, because it, it makes them feel uncomfortable. You can see it out of young people. People think that young people are really super progressive, but not necessarily. And I think, that, yeah, and I think, so doing that formal education route, embedding it in the courses is really only one piece. I think we really do need yes. the social, the societal change because where I've seen yes. where I've seen their sort of more fertile ground is actually people who've been affected by work that's gone on outside of academia. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people like to like to um, pretend that social media is just stupid and blah blah blah. Like you know, there's a lot. It's very very easy to criticize Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But actually, I see students coming in. Exactly, yeah. I see students coming in who've had um, who've had an education from social media that yeah. has prepared them. It's very valuable. It is very valuable. Exactly, it's prepared yeah. them for being more critical thinkers about about society, about history, about uh, making them less. Uh, just swallow whatever professors are telling them yeah. in a lot yeah. of ways. And really, um, I think it's, they don't necessarily have the confidence to to articulate that stuff, but I think it's very interesting to see that. And so that the work that, that you do on Twitter has has value for, mm-hmm. for making change. It's not just that you have to force your way into one of these these uh, ancient institutions that are built deliberately to keep people us out of, like us out of them. Yeah. You, can't, yeah. you can't deny that, you know, <laughs> In many ways, you know, they built the walls to keep people like us out. But, you know, so we don't we don't have to just force our way in to those institutions yeah, to make yeah. change because the changes is, is it, there has to be that thing outside. 
that yes. supports us and we have to support each other and you know put yeah. knowledge out the way that we do the stuff that you write um in in journalistic uh, um uh sources and mm -hmm. you know on medium all that kind of stuff i think that that is essential and so we shouldn't see yes. that as as a lesser thing that that is is going on it's really important because we need to change our peers we need to change our <laughs> elders and we need to prepare um, a, a, a young people to be able to accept and understand and learn and do better. Yes, thank you so much. And I think this is a really lovely point to end on. Um, and what I will take from this is the fact that we need to be vigilant and vigilance requires proactiveness and an intention. And I think that we can also use our imaginations to start thinking about what a new system of education would look like a transformative, um, you know, system that that is more of a communiversity or a multiversity. So, you know, involves grassroots organizers and activists and just start from the ground up so that there are no walls to keep any of us out. So yes. it's our own thing. It's our own thing. We think about what we want to um, put down, you know, in the curricula. We go back, you know, to, to, to co-production. So between those of us who have had the, the, the privilege of being trained in these ivory towers, to those who have, have learned through other means, and everyone has equal value and every form of, of knowledge is equally valued. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mwenza. Thank you. Um, I hope that everyone has been able to take something from today's episode. Forgive me for being so super emotional, but this, this field of bioethics is really very important to me. Um, and I hope that I'm able to devote more time to doing work in this field. And I know that you are already doing that, Mwenza. So thank you so much. Thank you very much to everyone and hoping that you all stay safe and well. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.